Welcome back to Behind Our Door. Welcome. Julie, good to see you. You too. It's always a pleasure. Yes. How was your week this week? My week was good. It's such gorgeous fall weather. It's the third week in October when this is being taped, and I'm still swimming in Lake Michigan. I'm not a good swimmer. I just love that lake. So it's... That's amazing. I know. It's suddenly warm again. It's the biggest treat on earth. And I have a feeling any day like tomorrow was probably the last day of that. I feel that too. I hate that it's getting darker earlier. It makes me sad. I kind of like that. You do? I like the changes. No. I I, I don't mind. I don't mind the weather. I just don't like the darkness. It makes me very sleepy. I hope you get home well tonight. (laughs) I will. Anyway, very exciting. Today is our first guest at Behind Our Door. And Julie, you brought her here, Dr. Julie Carbray. I'm so excited. This woman is so impressive. We're so happy you're here, Dr. Carbray. I'm excited to be here. And we have a lot to cover, so I'll get right into it. We'll hear a little bit about you, get into conversation, and see how we can uh, help those listening. Dr. Carbray is the director of the Pediatric Mood Disorder Clinic, leading the clinical program and multidisciplinary training for the clinic at University of Illinois, Chicago, and is a nationally recognized clinical expert in the area of children and adolescents with mood disorders. Her particular focus is helping families to manage their children with mood disorders, which is really interesting because when we hear what she's doing, involving the families is just an, a remarkable move. And, and groundbreaking. As, it as, really is. Especially it, when she started. It really is. She, Dr. Carbray is also a consultant to the Chicago Police Department, developing training curricula for officers responding to situations involving children and adolescents with mental illness. Another really important role. Wow. To say the least, we couldn't have chosen a better first guest. Oh, thanks. Thanks so, so much. Remarkable. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So remarkable. Now, how long have you two known each other? Dr. Carbright comes here as a relationship, long time with Julie. Yes. So let me interject for a minute. Um, Dr. Carbright, I met approximately 18 years ago, and she was our saving grace. Um, my son was fortunate enough to be one of her patients for many, many years. And, um, you know, when you're very young and your child young and you're very confused and overwhelmed, and she threw me a lifeline. That's why I look at her as my savior. So having you here, obviously, is like full circle. Every time I start a project, I drag her right in, and she willingly comes. Well, I think over the years, Julie has dragged me into quite a few really amazing projects. And I see Julie not only as a parent, of a child I met when he was really young. In fact, I was trying to remember, uh, I remember him last coming through my door with roses to celebrate the anniversary Uh. of the time we knew each other. And uh, it was at least 12, I don't know, 13, 14, 15 years. And so it's really a place of privilege to be able to connect with families when their children are so young and continue to stay connected. And and the cool thing about the other Julie is that (laughs) um, she has been such an advocate for parents and for families. And the work I did for that long amount of time with the Chicago Police Department was really interfacing through Julie. And I think our lives have, in many ways, blended our professional lives. And and Julie has continued to help me understand of what's important in reaching communities and families. It's fantastic. I mean, it's really, 
your balance of what you do is really so important. It's uh, when you, a lot of times you have these professionals that are talking about just themselves and the patients, but your involvement with families speaks volumes. It's, it's unusual, really. Well, and it's a unique place for those of us who start treating children. Um, you really can't treat a child without embracing the entire family and really navigating how the impact is on the family of where that child is in that moment of time. So, yeah, those of us that work in child and adolescent really see ourselves as working with families and continuing to be a part of that family over the child's life and development. In fact, it's a, a really fun uh uh, uh, recent update has been I've now treated the children of two of my patients that I've been at UA, UAC long enough now oh, wow. to now treat How the cool. children <laughs> of some of those children I first met when they were 16. And so that really is a very honored place to be. And I imagine, interesting, when you follow the whole the family history, you really know it this time, yeah. that it makes things even more interesting and perhaps yeah. a little easier to figure out. Yeah, understanding that context. In fact, the visit I had last week, we walked out of the room with rating scales, and I turned to the young man and I said, so you're probably not surprised to see that this rating scale is elevated in, in mania, in fact, for their, their youngster. So we're going to continue to watch and um, get to know how this illness may or may not manifest in your daughter, but at least we have some early signals that we can monitor. Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, I will say for us, we were very fortunate in the fact that Julie wasn't a doctor that you just go see, and she asks a couple of questions and prescribes medication. She sat, she sat down with us. We talked at length. I did a whole family history um, about cousins and brothers and aunts and uncles, and so it was a very extensive questionnaire and background that she took to try to figure out where we were at. Because originally when I came there, my son was not diagnosed with, um, I shouldn't say he wasn't diagnosed at all. He, he was diagnosed with ADHD by another doctor, um, but I knew there was something more. So when I sat down with, with Julie and she said, I, th I think it may be bipolar, and then we had him in a I talk about a medication study in our last mm -hmm. podcast. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it really was a light bulb moment for me. And she made me feel like I was in a safe place, which at the time was probably the most important thing to me. I didn't expect her to have all the answers. I just wanted somebody to hear me. Yeah, yeah. Now, do you think when you talk about that, Julie, and how many years ago this was? Um, almost 20. Almost 20 yeah. years ago. Dr. Carbright, do you do you see that there's a change with family with families acceptability the parents accepting this in a different way now do you think the stigma has changed was there when Julie's not speaking about Julie in particular but at that time were people less um, informed and less accept accepting of this yeah, I think it really depends on the community. I think in some communities, mental health and wellness have been much more accepted, um, particularly, I think, during the pandemic. I think everybody's aware of mental health being a component of our entire health. And so I think we're making some headway with that. In, in some communities, though, trust is still an important component. And 
uh, what what uh, patients have told me is that the interface with clinicians like myself is critical. If you're not listening and if you're not giving eye contact and a presence, uh, trust to go across that that diagnosis and that development of a treatment plan won't happen. Yes. And so I think in diverse populations, that's where we're failing still. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Yeah, that we're just not able to yet uh, convey that trust to make it a safe place, and to take the time that's needed. And I think that's one thing, too, that's really important, especially with with children and working with children and families, is it takes some time. Uh, Families are are not eager to jump into a medication fix Mm -hmm. for kids. And sometimes we'll work with families, it might even be a couple of years, where, you know, I might say, here's what the evidence says is best for your child, but they're just not there. They're not comfortable. Uh, and this happens on a on a daily basis with me with families, and so you're walking a different walk in terms of mm-hmm. that acceptance, in terms of psychoeducation, uh, laying out here's what the evidence says and the evidence to date, because we're still we're still trying to pull together all the science of what's best mm-hmm. for children. Uh, much of what we did over the past 20 years was really taken from adult psychiatry, and so we have great studies, but. You know, we're really trying to build the science while we're trying to help our families. And so uh, we've seen that even with this issue around COVID and vaccines. There's a level of trust. There's a level of science. There's a level of coming together to to make it, an, you know, an informed decision mm-hmm. ab- ab- around what's best for the child. Yeah, it's interesting. So for parents who can't you know, fly to Chicago and set up an appointment with you. And I don't even know how long it would take to see you or your clinic. But what is the best recourse they have to to seek out someone? Yeah, I think uh, every every neighborhood has a community mental health agency. Chicago has done a really good job uh, in sort of developing some websites around um Resources And so there's a, a great website in Chicagoland where um, you just type in Chicago mental health agencies. And I, I have the specific uh, link, but I'm sorry, to, I, I don't have it off the top mm-hmm. of my head. But there, there's really been some efforts, particularly in diverse populations, to... Um, you know, just go online, put in a zip code, and you might see agencies right. that, that have access nearby. The other thing I would say is to go to your child's school. And uh, often school-based clinics have somebody who's well-informed about resources in the neighborhood where you might be able to get a child in right. or not. Um in our experience, we have family-to-family networks where there might be a family who reaches out to another family whom oh, they that's know. Great. Yeah, that's great. Really, so peer to peer guys. Yeah, really connected. Uh, NAMI, of course, is yeah, a wonderful that's, resource. That's, that's so much a NAMI-based totally. philosophy. And that's what we've often um, done, too, is sometimes I'll say, just call NAMI. They seem to know the lay of the land. DBSA, um, mm-hmm. the Depression and Bipolar Support it's excellent. Association, also has some great, great, great resources. And they're getting more resources out there for children and adolescents. I think re- they've really been building that. I know DBSA, uh, their program director on a national level, now has uh, developed some videos that are online that can really help 
parents and children talk about emotions. And so there's many more. SAMHSA has a great website, even the National Institute for Mental Health. But see, it's going to the computer that when you're in the middle of a crisis with a child, you're not really going to do. Right. You're going to call a friend and say, who did, who did you take your son to? Yeah, I remember right. and, you and took you your son local, there. You want something local that is realistic yeah. and not general. Yeah. Yeah, but you're right, Julie. This has been a really challenging time for those of us who are specialists in this area. Uh, it's it's hard for me to sleep these days because I our bet. wait list. And I'm I, I told one of my team members from Friday till this morning I had five asks, all from people that I know, saying, "Could you please?" And 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 these are these are national. Um, somebody in New York who needed somebody to be seen. They were going to fly in. Somebody wow. from Michigan to fly in. And you know what? I you know what? I don't have those resources. Right. And uh, so I was able to say, "Did you think about this? Have you connected with this?" And sort of gave them some some of my ideas around what might Guidelines, be best. Yeah. yeah. But uh, the challenge for all of us within the world of child and adolescent mental health is just building more resources. So for the kids on our wait list, what can those families do? Maybe we offer, at UIC, we have a couple of active research trials right now. And so on our wait list, families are told about a study that has some online CBT, some online resources for families if the kids meet criteria right. for that particular study, but it offers them something uh, while they're waiting. And and I'll often tell families, get on a couple of wait lists. Let's see what Absolutely. rises next. Yes. That's a good idea. And squeaky wheels get heard. Yes. So that's the other thing I'll say. If, you know, the more you, you know, even if it's once a week, you contact with intake, they'll know that this family really is very eager to connect. Yes. I mean, my son did a lot of studies with UIC in the beginning. Yeah. Um, and he, at a young age, genuinely enjoyed it because they got paid. So yeah. he yeah. was very, and they were non-invasive. They weren't mm -hmm. medication studies. Mm -hmm. um, they were brain imaging mm -hmm. and... Uh, was like a facial recognition, emotional. Yeah, looking at memory mm -hmm. and sort of looking at what might evoke certain emotions, and then studying different areas of the brain. So yeah, there's there there are some studies that are ongoing. There's studies for um, moms too who may have depression. Their children may have depression, and sort of taking a look at the bi-directional concerns and actually some intervention studies too. So. Uh, our website within our UIC Department of Psychiatry uh, and also within our uh, UIC Depression Center uh, does have resources in terms of clinical trials and all of our intake information. Good to know. Can our listeners just go to the website? Yeah. And find? Okay, great. Yeah. We'll link it also on our social media so that yeah. they have it readily available. Yeah, that's really good to know. It's amazing that there's such a struggle with resources to the extent that there, you, I mean, you know there are wait lists all over the place really for everything these days, mental health-wise, housing to everything, but uh, that there just isn't a few people from New York and that they don't have enough resources. It's just hard to believe. Well, and our site is a training site, so each year we, we, we train these excellent psychologists, social workers, nurse practitioners, physicians to be specialized in child and adolescent mental health. But I feel that each year, if we could multiply or clone about 20 of our trainees to go out and do more, we also have some great research going on at our place. And over time, you might want to talk with some of our, our faculty who are really... 
scratching their heads trying to develop programs where you might have lay personnel within the community, um, community leaders, um, even across churches that may have a certain level of training to take care of this much of a mental health problem. And, and then have resources to connect when the problems really here. Arise, like a more of a crisis yeah. situation. But to at least jump on it, to do yeah. something. Yeah, to be of... able to have a set of tools that we know works, to be able to easily em- employ. And uh, something simple is uh, parent-child interactions. There's some great interventions that are around positive parenting. Many of us grew up with parenting that looked different yes. than how we... we recognize now that children really grow if they're parented in uh, different techniques that are more positively focused rather than punishments and consequences. (laughs) And so really coaching families and having environments where families can learn from other families, especially in diverse populations. And I will say that's super useful because we went through a program here locally in Chicago called Tuesday's Child, um, and that's exactly what they They trained, um, and I learned all kinds of different techniques on, on how to parent and how to de-escalate my son when he was, you know, falling into a, a crisis situation. And was there a component? There's a component too where you're talking with other parents, yes. isn't there? Yes. And I think there's nothing more robust than sitting in a room with other parents going through the same thing. I yeah. agree. Like the support group mentality is right. just not only are you learning that you're not alone, but you can learn. From each other and resources right and you've seen that nc in the family to family yeah programming I, I was just going to say educating the parents is is as good as as it gets as far as you know if you're on a waiting list that's it's not just saying that's a better than nothing it's so important and the more you know as a parent the more you'll understand it that is de-escalation you know that's right it's a whole there's a whole education to look at your child and see what exactly is going on here, and being more accepting to then have different actions. Right. What do you think the average age is of diagnosis? I feel like 20 years ago, my son being so little, like it was not very common. I obviously went to the pediatrician first, and you know they kind of told me it might be ADHD, we're unsure, prescribed some medication, did not work out real well. Went to a neurologist. He told me my son had a big head. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Wow. And I don't know if that theory still. <laughs> I don't know if that's still scientific. Um, he did have a big head, but <laughs> I mean, well, I'm not aware of that as being a marker. <laughs> I mean, one thing I do know is that uh, gray volume is actually less across many psychiatric disorders, which wouldn't speak to a larger head. No, <laughs> like, okay. I, think, I don't think that's on the list of <laughs> signs and symptoms. <laughs> I didn't think so either, but. <laughs> You know, and I, and I, I would say, Julie, it really depends on uh, the diagnosis. Say something like autism, you can really pick up some early signs, and most children are diagnosed before 36 months because there are some very clear indicators wow. where that's, you that's can incredible. figure that yeah. out. Yeah. Um, what but, about pediatric bipolar disorder, though? I mean, yeah. that's, that is, your son was how old, Julie? He was, when, I, when he got that diagnosis, 10? Ten. When I first started seeking treatment, he was five, and it took us five years to find the UIC clinic. Yeah, and it's it's you know the um, the diagnosis of pediatric bipolar disorder does have to be done very carefully um, and collecting information from a whole bunch of different places. 
and it's it's unusual to have an early diagnosis. And typically there's some family history involved when we see children that are quite young. So wait, when Julie was asking you age-wise, what is the youngest you would say you would have seen with pediatric bipolar disorder? So the youngest uh, that we've diagnosed within our clinic has, has been five, but there was a very strong family history and significant markers. These are the types of children who may have struggled across preschool settings for a couple of years. They just can't be in a, a school setting. And so their symptoms are pretty severe. Um, I know that in sites across the country, the youngest has been three-ish. Wow. Again, family history, significant symptoms. We've seen we've seen children as young as three within our clinic, but not with a meeting criteria for the diagnosis. Most children that we see are more in the elementary school ages, although of course we see children who are first diagnosed in their teen years. Yeah. Uh, when I was in school back in the 80s, you could not make a bipolar diagnosis in a child that was younger than 18. Right. And so this has really been uh, a newer understanding. And still somewhat, you know, there's still in the scientific literature, there are a couple of papers out this past year where uh, somebody posed the question, is there really pediatric bipolar disorder? And then those that have done this, this instrumental science in the field said, yes, indeed, we've proven, like, are you kidding me that we're still talking about this? And for somebody who's experienced positive response to treatment and the symptom profile and diagnostic criteria all made sense for their child, and then they see how well they're doing, there's no question that there's a presentation of this illness and that this illness responds to effective treatments. And you know, the earlier we see these kids, the better their outcomes. That yeah. we know for sure. Which I was imagine. A, that was the situation with me when I knew there was something more to it. I didn't have a name for it. I was very uneducated in the system. We did a double blind study. He was I knew immediately he was on medication because yeah. I he his whole demeanor just changed. Um, and he was very calm. For, I mean, for my son, I used to call him the, the rager. He would he would rage. He would have a whole meltdown in the Tasmanian devil. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, medication was key for me, and it wasn't like we didn't try everything else, as I've spoken about before. We did the behavior therapy. We did all vitamin therapy. I did all natural diet. I'd, I mean, if you would have told me to stand on my head in the corner, I would have stood on my head in the corner, but it wasn't working. Yeah. And the challenge with a, a pediatric bipolar disorder is often it does come along with ADHD. So the clinician who thought it was just ADHD was probably correct at that point, but it was yes. ADHD plus. Yes. And that's where we really get into confusing territory. And, and that the medication <clears throat> might not work for ADHD exactly. obviously doesn't answer the call to bipolar disorder. Exactly. And we've also learned that some of the therapies that we were doing, like a behavioral therapy, may not really work for a child with pediatric bipolar. So in our clinic, uh, there's we also developed a family-based CBT program for children with pediatric bipolar disorder that has been uh, researched and widely tested and uh, has been published in a manual. And it's very specific to how do you as a family manage this mood dysregulation that presents itself so with bipolar so cbt disorder. and i to explain to the the listeners cognitive behavior disorder yeah. for you to explain that a little bit would be great but i i am thinking that's it's really interesting that early that they do this because that really that teaches a coping mechanism 
that really must make a huge difference as the years go on. Yeah, the kids develop some skills, not only in identifying uh, their emotion dysregulation, triggers for that, but it also helps the family to identify what are those triggers and what are the ways in which uh, we might be able to monitor and mediate those triggers mm-hmm. in real time. Would you mind just explaining just explain a little bit to the listeners about that? CBT? Yeah, cognitive behavioral therapy is a, uh, a type of therapy that helps children and their parents, actually, to address the ways in which they might think and behave. Uh, so that's a cognitive behavioral uh and how that might impact their mood regulation and their functioning. So kids who have, say, depression, tend to have a lot of negative thoughts or stinking thinking. And so they can start out figuring out what are those thoughts and how often do they occur and under what circumstances. And you can't just change how you think. But you might be able to understand that when I think like this, it leads to this thought as well. And before you know it, I'm feeling a certain way. And so you might be able to have a behavior happen. Or um, So when you start thinking or having stinking thinking, what do you do then to say, oh, those are my stinking thoughts. What makes me feel better when I start to go down this trail? And then do something pleasurable that you've already thought out in advance to try to st- like sort of parlay that that thought into something that's a positive behavior that might then stop that thinking. Um, so it's really, really coaching kids on those ways that they might think that keeps them trapped. To almost retrain the way you're thinking. Yeah, yeah. And to have families to be able to understand that like when a kid's, when he's a rager, that's not a time you're going to inquire about his thinking. No, or, no, <laughs> but yeah. you might want to employ a behavior um, or something that you've already talked about. When he gets like this, here's what we do. It's not a time for you to do problem solving. or to, But he, he should, you sh- should have thought about that as a family and how you might intervene right then and there in the moment. So it's really skills, you know, teaching skills, um, identifying triggers, identifying coping mechanisms that you can use in real time, but it's family-based. So the child might have their own things. The parents might have their own in the moment. Each time you went into a rage, Julie, you might have thought, oh, here we go again. Buckle up. Buckle up. I better, you know, what can I do? Either mm-hmm. that or you feel like, oh, what can I do? And you start throwing the kitchen sink at it, and it's imploding. Yes, Instead, it, get, it gets worse. Yeah. So you, you figure out then together with your therapist what, what do we do to help when these rages happen? What do I do as a parent? What skills can he employ right yes. then and there? Um, and you made a great point. Sometimes medication needs to be at the right uh, medication, at the right dose, before you could even engage in these types of effective treatments. Yes, which, which we've learned a lot along the way, um, especially because they're growing and changing so quickly that even medication therapy is not an end-all, be-all. Right. Right. If only we had that magic pill. I wish. (laughs) That would readjust as someone grows. Absolutely. (laughs) And hormones and everything else. Take care of the environment, Mm -hmm. you know, stresses. I always said it was like almost like he was having a seizure. Yeah. And that I would have to back off and give him space till he could regain control of whatever was happening in his brain. 
Absolutely. And that's what our, our, our treatment within our clinic, uh, it's called RAINBOW. It's like an acronym. And our, our treatment really is all about that. How can we help families identify when there's this big mood dysregulation storm and effectively intervene at those points and, and collect some strengths when the child is actually doing well yes. and not having those storms. Yes. Yeah. Which, which we should point out that there are a lot, a lot of very good times with Absolutely. our children. Everything is, not every day is a crisis or every hour is a yeah, crisis. Definitely. And we have to remember to teach parents to focus on, or caregivers in general, you know, take value of those moments, live in those moments because they're so meaningful. And just because they have an illness does not make them a bad child. Absolutely. We never want their so, illness to become who they are. So important. And is there um, some sort of programming where there is training for teachers to, you know, not that they're not the family members, but they're with these kids such a large majority of the day. Is there some sort of CBT or otherwise training for proactive yeah, they're doing behavior. a lot in the schools um, these days, looking at emotion regulation. They're doing a lot with teaching kids to have conversations, to advocate for what they need. Uh, I, you know, this is an area that I'm not as well versed in, but I am aware that schools are adopting more curriculums around what do you do for a child who may be having anger yes. or um, more disruptions. I just, something came across my newsfeed today that schools are seeing more disruptive behavior now that kids are back in oh, school. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I believe that. I believe yeah. that too. I mean, I think they're walking wounded. They're trying to negotiate all these new social situations. I think our teachers are probably feeling very overwhelmed too. And there's always this tension too, Nancy, with giving teachers one more thing to do, take yeah. care of the mental health of, of their exactly. students. But it's right there in their faces. Where I've seen it work best is when there's a nice collaboration between those of us who are treating the child, say, out in the community, the parents, and the teacher team. Uh, because because that's when we can develop a plan. We can point them to some yeah, resources. It is, yes. a, it is a team. Yeah. yeah. For me personally, and I hate to keep interjecting with this, but... That was what I did. I, I created a team. I had Julie as his doctor. I had his teachers. I had his social worker, any, his pediatrician. Anyone that was involved in his caregiving on a day-to-day -day basis, I was doing email blasts. Like, I am the CEO of my son's healthcare treatment. Yeah. Yeah. And here's what we're doing today. You know, and I think it kept everybody on, on the same page and be able to communicate with one another because you want what's best for your child. Yeah, there's more success for the child. There's no doubt. Yeah, and I do. I, I think, too, that sometimes parents are so overwhelmed by what the illness does to their family. That's an understatement. That, right. And, Julie, there were, you know, I just continue to just highly regard the ways in which you continue to advocate for him because you were doing it as a single parent oh, thank and you. Oh, she's this woman's the role model i know really i know is. and i'm uh, not paying them for that and she, and, well and she was persistent and uh those of us that are clinicians that you know out there appreciate that persistence because you know we can easily get off task and tending to to different uh, challenges that we have within our own practice lives, but a mom like Julie is going to keep me on task with making sure that we're getting what we need to for their son. So what do you do with parents who are not so interactive then? We just yeah. want you to 
do but it. Yeah, they hire you to do it. and right. Well, right. you know, like, here's my child, and give them some medication and make them better. Yeah, if only, you know, I have a magic wand in my office, and so now that we're back in the office, I can say, I just really wish this worked that yeah. way. And usually it will take a team. And is there somebody that you've been confiding in around helping your son, and could they sort of be a buddy for you just to... To support you uh, as advice. you do this. Yeah, that's really good advice. Uh, is there somebody at the school? Uh, when I was raising my own children, the school uh, maintenance person was at lunchtime and would report to me anytime I'd come to school and say, you know, he's throwing out his lunch every day. I don't know if you're aware of that. <laughs> and so to me, she quickly became one of my best contacts at school because she had an eye on him. And so I often ask families, who at the school really knows your child? Right. And if you don't have somebody, let's figure out who that might be so that we know somebody is watching uh, and that's, can that's advocate for us. great advice. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's what parents might not think about. That's great advice. You know, just the anybody. Yeah, yeah. Because you don't realize who your child's best mm-hmm. ally is. Right. Right. And sometimes it's not the people you think it should be. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the, in our society these days, I'm seeing that families feel way more disconnected from other families. And there's less of that community support than maybe we used to have. You mean you're saying pre-COVID or not anything to do with that? I think or all even leading into COVID. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think that there were there used to be more family connects and I think a lot of families are living in different environments maybe from their 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 supports I, I hear a lot from our families that they really feel that you know their family is their extended family is away or they really can't be counted upon for support and they're not a part of a community and also parents isolate especially in those year, those early years they are not forthcoming about this because they haven't even figured it out themselves and yeah. so I think there's a lot of um, isolating to not be judged and shame and There's shame, a lot of shame and shame right. and so right. they there could be support but it's very hard it is to to decide who that could be and you're protecting your child right 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 so you may not sit at a soccer game and say hey does your son do this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know um, I th- I think that I, if I think one might say that maybe social media could be that. But then, you know, we, we're learning more and more that our social media may be very pigeonholed to certain, you know. Skewed. Skewed, yeah, yeah. skewed towards different ways of thinking or accessing information. And so I think this might be one of the ways in which psychiatry and mental wellness actually develops over time is how do we create more support? For families. Yeah, I, I agree with you with the social media angle. I belong to a lot of social media support groups and and most of them are wonderful, but who is running them and what are their views and do they agree with your views? And, um, you know, religion can come into play and next yes. thing you know, you're exiled out of the group and how is that helpful? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it has to be an open line communication. Years back when I found you, I found the Balanced Mind Foundation. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they had moderators who yeah. were were very unbiased, very impartial, and let a lot of conversations happen. And that's where I gained my strength to become an advocate for my son and to not feel shameful for who he was or what he suffered and, from. And how, boy, did he benefit. I mean, it turned out to be a good plan. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. And NAMI, of course, has support groups. I mean, and, and of course, 
almost everything is still virtual, yeah. which makes it easy because you can access a parent support group anywhere in the country. Right. The only downside of that is that when resources are discussed, they many times are not local if you're hooked into some out-of-state or out-of-your-own-town area. You might get great camaraderie, right. but you could lose out on some local resources. It depends what you want. But um, there's such a broader world out there in support now that things are all still online. And they, the support groups, for the most part, are because many of them take place in hospitals that don't want to have extra people in there right now yes. and libraries and... Yes. I think, uh, like NAMI, uh, the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance, their online groups have just grown exponentially. And so if you don't like one group, you can try a different group. I always encourage people to do that, saying that yeah. it's drop-in. So sometimes right. you'll relate and sometimes you won't. Just keep going. Yeah. Because when you find it, it's the best medicine for you that you can have. You know, um, even within our, our study that we did that took a look at our family-based CBT program, it was a parent uh, value, uh, a parent variable that really made the difference in the child outcomes. If, if parents felt that they were doing better, we saw that the child actually did better. So, it's not hard to believe. Yeah, you can't I take away that family that. component. Yeah. That's, a, that's a phenomenal goal because I feel like they're young. So then for the rest of time, hopefully, there is a basis of understanding of the parents to this child that's growing into you know, young and teenager yeah. and beyond that it's... It takes a village. It, it does. It takes a village, and you yeah. have to have a village. You cannot do it by yourself. Yeah, and sometimes you have to build that village. Yeah. And that's where I think I, I saw Julie, you know, one brick at a time. <laughs> at a time when I bought a lot of people little. presents to yeah. help me. <laughs> when there was very little out there, you know... There was, and there was yeah. no online, so you had yeah, to seek it out, right. which is how I found NAMI. But at the time, I had to drive to the support groups that were not exactly around the corner. But I had to invest the time, and looking back, I wish I had found them earlier. But not. But also, 20 years ago, there was not as much understanding. No. There were not parents that talked about this as much as today. Right. And I think NAMI's Family to Family mm -hmm. program really helps equip parents. Well, Family to Family really does. That is a program, not that I'm, I'll do a NAMI commercial, but <laughs> it, I always say I feel good talking about it because these programs are at no cost. Right. Yes. Um, but Family to Family is a, now it used to be 12, now an eight-week class that is about adults caring for adults. In other words, this would be for someone 18 and over. There is a NAMI uh, class called NAMI Basics, and that is six weeks for parents of any early, early age until 18. Okay. And there's no written rule of, okay, you have a 17-year-old, you can't go to the, but it's what you relate to, and it's yeah. just phenomenal. You learn anywhere from signs and symptoms to how to take care of yourself as a parent. The first two and a half hours each class, the first half is... Um, to learning and the sent by people that are trained facilitators, trained right. teachers by NAMI, uh, NAMI National Programming. And the second half is sharing. So it used to be, you know, in person, and now they have, of course, online something like 15 people sitting around a table that are learning together and then share, why are you here? And it's just, it's phenomenal. It makes a yeah. big difference. Yeah. It is. It's very magical. Um, the last thing I wanted to touch upon was 
a little bit about medications and some insight into that, like what's good, what's bad, what do you do? Yeah, um, for the first part of my career, I was not a prescriber. Nurses became um, prescribers here in the state of Illinois, one of the later states to the game. And so it's added something to the toolbox that I've been grateful for because they can medications can make a big difference. But having had a lot of my career spent in not having that tool, I've, I also would like to advocate for other therapies, other treatments. Um, psychopharmacology is a tricky business. It can be easier for something like the diagnosis of ADHD. We've been using stimulant medications for years um, with children. Yes. And, uh, and they're effective, and they can really turn things around if ADHD is on the table. Where things get more complicated is when you have comorbidity, um, a bunch of different diagnoses in the mix. And in children, that's more often the case than not. And so psychopharmacology usually uses an approach where you have to figure out what you're managing. The diagnosis comes first, right? Right. And then a prioritization around what are the predominant symptoms that we're really trying to address and our overall question is, is would a medication help with functioning for this child beyond what other treatments would, would offer? And, it, and that can be a diagnostic question, say in the area of anxiety disorders, there's a good body of evidence that with children, you, you're really going to try therapy first before you might employ before a medication. Any, before any medication? Yeah. You'll spend some time seeing if therapy alone might really. Now, if the child is so social phobic that they can't function anywhere, medication may be on the table at the very beginning. Similarly, with depression, it depends upon the depth, the scope, and the level of functioning that that child is having in the midst of their depression and how, how um, accessible therapy might be for that child as well. But medications can be highly effective in some disease states more than others. Uh, We'd love for them to do more. There's this newer field and this newer field called neuromodulation, which uh, involves non-medication type treatments, uh, anything from ECT, which is not a new treatment, but we, we know how to do it more like effectively TMS. to TMS, uh-huh. right? And the, do they do TMS for children, for young children? So there's some studies that are ongoing around TMS, but, uh, but those studies are still coming out, so it's not widely accepted, and we're still waiting for more evidence to build. Mm. Similarly, you've probably heard about um, like uh, newer treatments, you know, psilocybin, ketamine, yes. these oh, newer yeah. the commercials frontiers. Are all over. Yeah, and similarly for children, we're waiting for all the data to come out. So we're having our patients ask us about these treatments while the science continues to develop. But uh, certainly we have a great a great body of literature at this point that shows what are best evidence-based psychopharmacology treatments for anxiety in children, for bipolar disorder in children, for uh, ADHD, certainly. That's been around for some time. And so typically they've been around particular disease states, but moving forward, we're beginning to see that something like irritability goes across all of those diagnoses. Wow. So then what do you do That's if you have a child who has predominant irritability, but it's maybe caused by anxiety? Does that mean the medication is going to be a different medication that you use or not? So there's some 
some great discussions around all of that. It is a tool that can be very effective. And again, we will first do a great comprehensive evaluation, get information from different sources, uh, make sure that the child is medically not having anything else going on, and then we would slowly begin to address whether a medication trial would be important. Wow, those are great tools. Yeah. Well, you're such a wealth of knowledge. We could talk to you till the sun goes down. The sun is is down, but we could talk to you forever. (laughs) Well, this Um, was fun. So you're going to have to come back. Okay. I think we'll have to, you'll be be a regular guest of sorts because there's so much to talk about. We just, we just touched upon such important things that I know more to come. Yeah. um, If you have questions or comments about our podcast, um, We are on the socials, so you can follow us on Facebook or Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. And you can always email us at behindourdoor.mail.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis struggling with mental illness, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI Helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening.